Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals, providing knowledge that is moving medicine forward. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me today is Dr. Fernando Ovalle. He's the Director in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at UAB Medicine, and he's here to discuss the latest treatments for type 1 and type 2 diabetes in the diabetes belt. Dr. Ovalle, it's a pleasure to have you with us. As we get into this topic, and we're hearing more and more about the epidemic and the obesity epidemic, and we're going to talk mostly about type 2 here today, but can you tell us just a little bit about the prevalence of diabetes in central Alabama, what you have been seeing in the trends? Oh, hi, Melanie. Thank you for having me. Well, the prevalence of diabetes, as you probably have heard, is is high and it keeps going up. Right now in Alabama, I think the state prevalence is roughly around 12%, 13%, depending on how you count it. But there are some counties in central Alabama where the prevalence is as high as 19%, almost 20%. And that means that almost 20% of all adults, and I'm talking about adults, have diabetes. That's one in five people over age 20. If you look at people over age 40 or 60, 65, then the prevalence goes even much higher, sometimes as high as 50%. So the prevalence is very high. Well, then with that increasing prevalence, what are some of the complications that you see most commonly in this population? It's a mix of things. And I think we have different groups of people who tend to get different complications. But if we pull them all together, all people with type 2 diabetes, then I would say neuropathy is one of the most common ones. I would dare to say that almost all people with type 2 diabetes, by the time they get diagnosed, have neuropathy. Whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, that's a different question. And whether what tests you need to do to determine that. That's a different question, but there are papers out there, all papers that suggest that 70, 80% of people are diagnosed already have neuropathy, and that's pretty much probably what I see in clinical practice. As a matter of fact, if somebody comes to see me with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, and I find that they have deep tendon reflexes in the ankles still present, that is one of the red flags to me. It's like, hmm, you know, am I dealing really with type 2 diabetes? Or am I dealing with some other type of diabetes? Because I expect it to be present. Now, I don't expect everybody to complain about it or to have pain, but but I expect them to have some degree of loss of sensation. That's very common. And the other very common, especially here in the Southeast, is kidney disease. The number of people who have either protein in the urine or albumin in the urine or a decrease in their kidney function is just staggering. I would say that probably over 50% of the patients that I get to see have chronic kidney disease. And that much more dependent on the subtype of diabetes and the background of the patient who has diabetes. And if you are African-American, the chances of having kidney disease are much greater. If you have a family history of that, even greater. And then retinopathy. Retinopathy tends to be a little more difficult to diagnose for the routine physician who's not an ophthalmologist because you have to be trained and spend time looking at their eyes. And the equipment that we have in the regular offices is usually not adequate enough to allow us to 
do a good job of screening for that. But I pride myself on having good training on that and being able to look for that. And I also find it quite common. A lot of the people who have kidney disease already have retinopathy as well, mild or beyond. So all of them are very common, but I would say that by far the most common is neuropathy. So as we're talking about those complications, there's also many comorbid situations going on, maybe high blood pressure or, as you mentioned, kidney disease. What are some clinical interventions that you've seen to be most effective when you're combating those common complications and comorbid conditions? Thank you for asking that because it's very important to note that almost everybody with type 2 diabetes are obese or at least overweight. And that's the one common denominator for type 2 diabetes. The one thing that if we were to address it, we'll tackle everything. If you treat diabetes, if you help people lose weight, their blood glucose gets better, and therefore anything related to blood glucose gets better. If the blood pressure gets better, and anything related to blood pressure gets better, and then anything directly related to obesity also gets better, and insulin resistance, etc. So that is at the root of the problem in type 2 diabetes. That's not to say that there is other things that we need to worry about, and there are people who are not obese. Now, when you talk about people who are not obese, then you start getting into semantics. Are we really talking about type 2 diabetes, and isn't that a different subgroup? And it depends how you interpret the current definitions of type 2 diabetes that have been proposed by the American Diabetes Association and the second by other organizations around the world. But even with a loose definition of type 2 diabetes, obesity is quite prevalent. And I would say that is where you get the most bang from your book. So you're working on those comorbid conditions and specifically, as you've said, the prevalence of obesity is what complicates so many of the situations. Now, as we're talking about that increasing prevalence, how much do you rely on patient-provided data when it comes to your management strategies? There are new technologies that we're hearing about, Dr. Ovalle, like continuous glucose monitoring. Speak about that role in diabetes management, professional versus personal CGM use in clinical practice. It's really transformed the way we manage patients, and it's really helped our patients a lot, and it's helped us a lot as physicians as well. It makes everything more clear, less frustrating. We're guided. We're doing something with data. Even if you do nothing else, if you just give somebody a sensor, and I'm talking about the continuous glucose monitors that patients can actually read and see, by just giving it to them and putting it on them, you empower them. And that is very important. People like to see data too, even if they don't know it, if they're not very tech savvy. If you give them a goal, if you give them a number, it's just like giving them a little game. People respond to that. And some people is because they are competitive. Some people is because they get concerned. Some people is because they needed some guidance. They just don't know whether what they're doing is correct or not. They don't know what's making things worse, what's making it better. And that by itself makes people do better. There is evidence out there that shows if you put somebody in a continuous glucose monitor with nothing else, their A1C improves by about 1%. And I see that all the time. Some people even better than that. So that's very important. Also, when you say about how do we trust people there, I trust it. I trust it a lot. There is always a few bad apples where you know they're not telling you the truth. But once you put them on these continuous glucose monitors, 
everything becomes more clear. But in most cases, in 98% of the cases, you can trust what the patient tells you. They're not going to come and waste their time with you. They tell you what's going on, and I trust their data frequently much more than I trust the A1C. The A1C has a lot of flaws, and we've learned over the years. We knew some of these flaws even before we had so many continuous monitors available out there, but it's even become much more clear now that we're missing a lot by just trusting the A1C alone. So the technology has been helping a lot, and it's improving rapidly. It's a great advancement. Doctor, tell us what's going on in medicational intervention. How has that changed over the last decade or so? What are some of the developing diabetes treatment options that you feel are most promising and the role that physicians have in seeking new and developing diabetes treatments as you're working with these patients and you're seeing what works? So there are several medications, there are several classes of drugs that have been developed over the last 10, 20 years that have just now been starting to get used more commonly and they are taking off. And I'm talking about the two classes of drugs I'm talking about are the sodium glucose co-transport inhibitors and what we call SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonist, and now the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor coagonist. And those are the classes of drugs that have really come to make a huge difference in the management of diabetes. Not just because they're very effective in terms of blood glucose control, because we could have done a lot of these beforehand. Before we had these drugs, we could just give more insulin and get the blood glucose down or use other drug therapies that we had and they're very effective at blood glucose lowering. But the problem was that that's all they did. Most of what they did was just lowering glucose. And while that's important, very important, we don't want to come across as saying that lowering glucose is not important because that can easily be misinterpreted. There are many other things that we're not doing with the previous drugs that we used and that now we are. To start with, these drugs are addressing other things that we didn't before. And one of them is the role of the kidneys in glucose metabolism. We know that the glucose in blood is a direct effect from what we eat, the exogenous glucose intake, plus what we make. And the liver makes two-thirds of it, and the kidney makes one-third of that. So we were missing a chunk of the piece of the puzzle in there. And now we have a way to not just understand it better, but also to manipulate it. The other is the role of the GI tract and the role of glucagon. And for that, we have the incretins, the GLP-1 receptor agonist, and now the dual agonist, which have also kind of reminded us that it's just not insulin we're dealing with. We're dealing with a whole set of other hormones that regulate glucose metabolism. And these other hormones are just as important as insulin. Now, insulin if you compare them all alone as how insulin, of course, is very powerful and it's one of the most important, but that doesn't mean that the other ones are not important and they're extremely important and we're learning and learning more about glucagon and not just glucagon itself, but the glucagon-like peptides and their effect on the receptors and how complex that is. It's just if you activate one receptor, each of those receptors by themselves the effect that you get is different as compared to when you activate them all together. So the field is really advancing rapidly and becoming much more complex, but at the same time, it's been very helpful to have these tools nowadays. 
Well, it certainly is rapidly advancing. And before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to recommend to primary care physicians about anything you would like them to know, whether it's using diabetes technology in their primary care practices or update on anything that you would like them to know. But before you answer that, I'd like you to just give us some latest recommendations on diabetes lifestyle management, because as lifestyle management remains very basic to long-term management of diabetes, and there's no one-size-fits-all rules. And so you were discussing a little bit earlier and the prevalence in Alabama. So speak about lifestyle management and then segue into a summary of what you would like other physicians to take away. What we can all do right now is obviously make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that diet and exercise, but most important, diet makes a huge difference in all these metabolic diseases, diabetes being the most obvious out there. But we don't want to stop emphasizing the need for a diet and changes in diet and not just tell people you need to lose weight because people... But they've heard that a million times, and we know it's extremely hard. You gain 10 pounds, and it's just so hard to lose it. So we have to make sure that we're empathetic, that we try to understand what people are going through that is extremely difficult. And they hear us, but they hear it differently depending on how we say it. So it's important that we support them, that we tell them, I'm with you, I understand, and try to cheer them up and empower them, little gains a little bit at a time, and give them the tools. And I would say out of everything out there, of course, medications are extremely helpful and important, losing weight nowadays. But those new tools that we're developing that give people data are extremely helpful because people tend to try, if we give them the tools, they will do it. We give them a tool like a continuous glucose monitor that in a diabetic allows them to tell, hey, what you ate probably was either too much or the wrong thing. It's extremely valuable. It's maybe not for everybody, but for most people, it allows them to change their behavioral modification tools that are really powerful. So I would say there is nothing else other than counseling. These new technology tools, we need to use them and give them to people just to make it easier for them. They're extremely helpful. They probably just think that if we had a tool or a sensor like that would allow people to know how many calories they're eating, people will stop after we tell them, hey, this is how much you burn in a day and you have a gauge just like you have in the gauge in your car for the gasoline. You know how far you can go and you're not going to drive from Alabama to New York with just one gas tank. You know, you know you're going to have to stop and how far you can go before you have to stop for gas and the same thing when you eat, how many calories you can eat per day. If we had those tools that will give people that type of data, that would be extremely valuable. Now, of course, we don't have that yet, but I'm analogizing this to make the point that data makes a huge difference. When you exercise, for example, it makes a big difference if you know, and I haven't done this before in a spinning class where you had data, including your heart rate, including how much power you were generating, how much energy you were generating in watts, and in not just calories, but watts of energy. That data-driven approaches to whether it's exercise, diet, or glucose management, they're incredibly helpful. We do it all the time with other things. We do it with blood pressure. We do it with oxygen. We do it with many other things that we do in life nowadays. So I would emphasize the use of the technology nowadays. 
What great information. Really up to date. And you're so succinct about it. So thank you so much, Dr. Ovalle. It's such an important topic. And thank you for joining us. And a physician can refer a patient to UAB Medicine by calling the MIST line at 1-800-UAB-MIST or by visiting our website at uabmedicine.org slash physician. That concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole.